What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Having the media be mad or, or label you a, a, an asshole is normally bad unless your brand and reputation is based around you being an asshole. If you're pursuing this success because you have some hole inside you that you think success is going to fill, I think you're going to be rudely awakened. Hey folks, Mark Devine here with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for coming back and listening today. Totally appreciate it. Don't take it for granted. Hoo-yah, I know your time is valuable. Hey, before I get started, introduce today's guest who is a friend and, and a, a terrific author, writer, and consultant, coach, all sorts of things, uh, named Ryan Holiday. We are going to ask you one more time. Actually, I'll probably ask you more than one more time, but for today, one more time, that if you like what you're hearing and you like the guests and you like the podcast, then go rate it at iTunes because it really does help other people find it when they search for similar titles, right? Like uh, Tim Ferriss, for instance. So if you search for Tim Ferriss and Mark Divine Unbeatable Mind podcast pops right up next to it, then uh, that's a good thing for us. Okay, so go rate it at iTunes and get on our email list if you want to at unbeatablemind.com slash podcast. All right, Ryan Holiday. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, real quick, Ryan is a media strategist, uh, marketing guru. Uh, he's got a company called Brass Check where he advises, you know, little tiny companies like Google. Um, and he also advises prominent authors like Tony Robbins, uh, Tim Ferriss, uh, Mark Devine. <laughs> <laughs> Had to get that in there. <laughs> At any rate, he's got some terrific books, like terrific. I love, I love your books, Ryan. So I haven't read the first one, or th this one sounds interesting. I want to get it. Trust me, I'm lying. Confessions of a media manipulator. <laughs> but I have read the obstacle is the way, and ego is the enemy. Uh, your latest book, and I want to talk about both of those today. But before we do that, I want to ask you first. I read somewhere that you dropped out of school at 19 and you moved to LA with your buddy Tucker Max. And if, if you don't know Tucker Max, uh, he's got, he's a best-selling author and his books are hilarious. His, I think his first book was, I hope they serve beer in hell. And yeah. then he's got one called assholes finish first. <laughs> like what's up with are you and Tucker? Good friends. I mean, yeah, do you share a yeah, similar he, philosophy, I should ask. <laughs> uh, in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. Um, I met Tucker when I was in college. I wrote an article about him for my college newspaper. And he was like the first author that I'd ever really met. Like the idea that you could write about your life and write about what you thought and funny things that happened to you as a living was like not something that I grew up really understanding. And so I met him and and we had a relationship that wasn't based on sort of a shared affinity for 
drinking and hooking up, but um, <laughs> we both love books. Right, and right. he was a mentor of mine, and, and he, he helped me get my start as a writer, ultimately. And right. um, Yeah. So you dropped out of school, and with, he, he was coming out, out to L.A. to do what? To, so were you kind of moving yeah, out he, here to, to co-create together, or just was he your impetus to kind of get a, catch a ride uh, west? No, he was about 10 years older than me at the time. Okay. Uh, he just sold the television and the movie rights to his book, and so he was, ah. he was in the middle of adapting that, and, and I came out and I, I worked for him. I was his assistant, and then I worked on the marketing for his books and for the movie that ultimately came out. Um, and He had a, a media company at the time that published a lot of other authors online, and so it, it was sort of a crash course in how one builds an online presence and then turns it into... Uh, sort of a real brand, you know, in cool. 2006, 2007, no, no one was really doing this yet. And so I sort of got an early look and I ended up leaving school because this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I wasn't going to learn about it in a classroom. You only really learn about that stuff from someone who's doing it. Yeah, right. Because he's, he's creating a whole new way to market and present oneself to the world. That's interesting. Yeah. So this, uh, the book, Trust Me, I'm Lying, Confessions of a Media Manipulator, that came out of that experience, I'm betting. Yeah, it came, it came from some of the crazy stuff that we did with him. Like we created fake boycotts of his work. We sort of courted controversy. <laughs> I ended up going on. I was the director of marketing at American Apparel for for a number of years, which okay. is also controversial and provocative. So it's it was sort of, you know, one of the really awesome stuff about the Internet is that sort of anyone can create anything. One of the downsides is that anyone can create anything. Right. And it, it sort of leads to this sort of outrage culture that we live in and hoaxes and publicity stunts and so it's sort of an expose about how all of that works yeah i want to i want to dig into that a little bit more because it's a it's a world i don't know much about because you know most of what we do is try to be completely authentic but so totally when have i been manipulated by you or by tucker like what are some of the, the things that you've done i know you just quickly alluded to a couple but let's talk about some of the more successful things you've done yeah so we did the publicity stunt for the book where we pretended to be uh, that we were boycotting. We created these protesters and it became this sort of real huge thing. We did another one where we paid. There was a service a while ago called Sponsored Tweets where you could you could tweet, uh, you could get celebrities to, to tweet anything you wanted. And so we, we tried to get them to tweet all these offensive things and then we leaked <laughs> what they rejected. Um, we did, we did one where we tried to name a Planned Parenthood clinic after Tucker. Um, oh, that's hilarious. You know, we were basically doing anything and everything you could do to get attention because we found that his audience just found it all hilarious and they weren't actually it, – it, having the media be mad or, or label you a, a, an asshole is normally bad unless your brand and reputation is based around you being an asshole. And so in doing that, you know, we would get lots of publicity, which would, we found ultimately sold lots of books. Uh, you know, apparently it's good for running for president too, isn't it? You're, you're totally right. It, it can't, I think what we've seen in this election is precisely why I was motivated to write the book, which is that, you know, it's funny to do it for a book or it's, it's funny to do it for a, an apparel company but these same strategies can sort of be used to manipulate politics or foreign policy. And, you know, we've seen, we've seen Donald Trump as a presidential candidate essentially be able to do anything and everything he wants from a media perspective because they're so desperate for traffic and attention. Right. How, how much of media today do you think is manipulation? Like when I, you know, I study geopolitics and I track patterns and things and 
you know, like what I see with like what's going on with Turkey and I'm realizing, God, there's just massive amounts of manipulation going on there. Very little of what's being said by the state media is true. And I'm wondering how much of that is true in the United States as well. What's your experience? Well, at the most basic level, if the media is no longer adver- is, is no longer subscription based, but it's primarily based on advertising revenues right. Right. and every article is competing for attention over all the other articles that are competing that, that have been published. You could argue that everything we see is manipulated in one way or another because the writer is trying to get your attention versus trying to be of value to you. And so I think that's the biggest manipulation. And then certainly there's some of this warfare stuff you, you, you sort of alluded to in, right. in the comments section and on social media. So I think uh, to a large degree, everything that we read today is, is manipulated by these forces. It's not the same as, say, straight out propaganda, but it's not as reliable and as truthful as we would think it would be or we would hope it would be. And you've got to think, you know, at least it has in my case, that, you know, over time, this this completely erodes our trust in in traditional media. And so it's opened up a huge opportunity for people who actually do tell the truth and do use, you know, authenticity in, in their uh, communications. I think that's true, although we're all facing those same incentives. And so it's like truth is truth and, and authenticity is a great long-term strategy. But in the short term, people are often motivated and incentivized to do the wrong thing. And, and you, that's why you have to have sort of a strong internal compass right? as a, as a brand and as a, as a creator of something. Right. Now I want to uh, turn focus from marketing because this has got kind of a, a negative uh, tint yeah. to it and you know what's going on in the world. And, and let's talk sure. about something more positive. Now, you're a big fan of stoicism mm-hmm. and it really comes through in a big way in your book, The Obstacle is the Way, which you know, I know has a little bit of a, a following in the um, athletic and warrior communities because, you know, those are those are people who are not shying from challenge. And one of your key tenets is that we must go to the obstacle, overcome the obstacle, and that's where we're going to learn the lessons and grow as a human being. Tell, tell me about or tell us about how that book came about, your, your interest in stoicism, you know, and, and some of the lessons that you learned writing the book and you were trying to convey in the book. It's funny, I, I was sort of introduced to Stoicism right around the same time that I met Tucker. There are these sort of two different paths that I was going on at the same time, which I'm sure you can relate to. Yes. I was at this conference and I went up to the speaker and I said, hey, you know, what books would you recommend to someone my age that you think would be important? And, and he told me I should, I should read the Stoics and I did and it sort of hit me like this big you know, pile of bricks. Mm-hmm. To, to me, the, the Stoics are the most practical of all of the philosophers throughout mm-hmm. history. You know, they're not talking about these things metaphysically or theoretically. They're saying, look, here's how you should live. Here's how you should deal with the problems that you face in life. Here's how you should manage your temper. Here's how you should, you know, manage greed. You know, here's, here's how you should do with all the emotions and temptations you feel as a human being. And so I was really attracted to that as a young person. And I, you know, I read Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and, and Epictetus and all of the other Stoics. And what I sort of took away from that, what's, what I've tried to live my life by, is this sort of stoic mentality of, look, you don't control what happens to you, you control how you respond. And I think that, that that's obviously a mindset you have to have in sports, that certainly mm-hmm. in the military you would have to have the same idea, but also as a, as a business person and as an entrepreneur or just a, an executive, like every day you wake up and there's a list of problems you have to solve, mm-hmm. and you don't really 
solve anything by complaining. Right. Right. So Marcus Aurelius' Meditations is an excellent uh, read recommendation. What yeah. about, um, you know, Epictetus and Seneca had, had, you know, they wrote a lot. Was there a single yeah. source that you would recommend that we take a look at? Seneca is probably the most accessible of the Stoics. So mm-hmm. he has a, a wonderful essay called On the Shortness of Life okay. that I would urge everyone to read. He's basically saying, you know, life is long if you know how to live it. Mm-hmm. You know, don't think about being afraid of death. Think about focusing on living in every moment, and it's one of my favorite essays ever. Nice. Epictetus is a, is a bit more preachy. You know, he was he was the only one that was a an actual teacher, mm-hmm. but there, it's called the Discourses of Epictetus. I would probably urge people to read that last. Mm-hmm. Although there's a, a Tom Wolfe novel who's a great uh, author. He wrote a book called A Man in Full mm-hmm. um, that that's based primarily on Epictetus, which which might be worth reading if someone was looking for a fictional take on the mm-hmm. Stoics. Mm-hmm. You know, I recently reread Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. And oh, wow. uh, it, it was, it's fascinating how much he obsesses about death. In the, yes. It's fascinating. I mean, like almost a, a big chunk of the book is about death and, and how to prepare for death and, you know, how silly it is to get so wrapped up in the mundane things in life because we're all going to die, basically. Yeah. It's and and there's, some, there's, there's some interpretations that say, you know, Marcus Aurelius was old and sick when he was writing the meditation. Mm-hmm. So he's not writing to tell you that you know, he wasn't writing this as this person who was necessarily obsessed with death all the time. But it's rather, you know, he was dying. Right. And he was trying to struggle with this immensely scary, difficult thing. And he just wanted... You know, Stoicism, like most philosophies, it's like, or even Christianity, it's like, here's the Bible. These are all the facts. You need to know what's in this Bible. Right. Stoicism is much more like sort of a, an, like meditation and Buddhism. It's more of a process. Personal discovery. And so Marcus Aurelius is writing these things down as a reminder to himself and to, to work through, you know, in some ways, probably feeling the opposite. When he's like writing a meditation about, you know, you shouldn't lose your temper. It looks bad you know, and you're hurting people, maybe he lost his temper earlier that day and he's trying to sort of review and improve. And I think it's so interesting that you have, you know, the most powerful man in the world writing these little notes to himself about how to get better. I don't think Nero or Julius Caesar was doing that. (laughs) No, no, it was like his personal journal. He probably didn't intend it to be published, you know, and consumed. I don't think he did. And and we have no idea what order he wrote any of these things in either, right? Because it was been lost in the course of the translation. So we don't know if he wrote a lot more and that was all lost. We don't know if he intended it to be, you know, numbered differently. We just know that this smart, wise person, you know, we have that saying absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. We have someone who's like the exception that proves the rule in Marcus Aurelius, and he wrote down, you know, a couple hundred pages of self-improvement advice, mm-hmm. and it survives to us. That just gets me so excited even yeah. to think about. Yeah, me too. That's terrific. Hi. I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a cool new product that I've tested recently called the PowerDot. The PowerDot is an app-based wearable tech device that provides EMS, or electrical muscle stimulation. It's simple to use and to control from your cell phone. It has a number of pre-programmed routines, such as for recovery, for warming up, for cooling down, healing, and also, believe it or not, for developing strength and speed. This thing is cool. It's powered out as FDA approved, and my team has been testing it for a while, and we love it. 
Now, the folks over at PowerDot have put together a special deal for us. Trust me, this is a game changer, so I think you're going to want to check it out. So go to mypowerdot.com and use the discount code HUYAMINDS, HUYAMINDS, H-O-O-Y-A-H-M-I-N-D-S, for a 10% discount exclusively for you, listeners of the Unbeatable Mind podcast. You can also find the link and the code in the show pages now. Okay, back to our program. Hoo-yah. So in your book, The Obstacles Away, what you, you love to tell stories and use them to you know, illuminate some principles. Can you convey just a, one or two of your favorite stories and principles that you, know, you think most people have re- resonated the most with your readers? Sure. I, I love to tell stories because I think Stoic philosophy is so readable that I urge everyone to just go pick, pick up, actually pick up Marcus Aurelius or Seneca. But I wanted to add something. And so I thought, how can I illustrate some of these ideas mm-hmm. in story? And so one of my favorite stories in the book is the story of, of Thomas Edison. You know, later in his life, um, his, his factory catches on fire and he, he rushes to the scene. His, his life work has basically gone up in in flames right. and his son is standing there his son's you know, shell-shocked and edison he grabs him and he says go get your mother and all her friends you know they'll never see a fire like this again <laughs> and and you know he he hadn't lost his mind it's like you know a fire truck back then is like a, a wagon a you know pulled by a, a donkey there's nothing you can do about it so he's just sort of a, enjoying it in a weird perverse way and the stoics you know, Nietzsche says, he calls this approach from the Stokes, he calls it amor fati, which in Latin means a, a love of fate. It's basically like the things you can't do anything about are not worth crying over. Right. They're, worth, they're worth enjoying or ac- simply accepting. But more than accepting, can you find some little bit to enjoy? Right. And, and, and that enjoyment can just be the lesson and the growth that comes from what happened to you. You know the challenger. The, yeah, or the injury, or or you know that that thing you can you can laugh, right? Like right. it, it you can find some benefit in every situation, no matter how horrible. For sure. You know, as you're as you're talking here, I'm reflecting upon my experience in the SEAL teams, and whether we know it or not, the SEALs are big time Stoics, and and you all you know you alluded to that with the military mm-hmm. warriors, and boy, you know when I went through Bud's training, you know the hardest training in the world, and people are just getting crushed left and right. And those of us who made it, you know, who were who thriving there, found the whole thing very funny. <laughs> you know, every day was a great <laughs> opportunity to just have a good chuckle at all the crazy things that the instructors were coming up with. And they're just diabolical, humorous way that they could induce pain and get people to quit was a huge show for those of us 19 who were standing at the end. So <laughs> I think it kind of comes yeah. naturally, you know, to certain folks but you can practice it. yeah there's this perception that stoicism means you have no emotions right. and really stoicism is about just weeding out the unhelpful harmful emotion so it's it's not getting angry it's not getting depressed it's not getting it's not taking things personally but it is enjoying life it, but it's also not pretending that you have control over things that you don't actually have any control over right it's almost the opposite from the the culturally accepted viewpoint of Stoics, right? So I, most people, you know, will think that a mm-hmm. Stoic is kind of a hard ass or a downer, you know, super serious. 
And, you know, I often say that like one of the most serious men I ever met in my life mm -hmm. was the grandmaster who taught me where I got my, my first degree black belt. And he, you know, he came from the samurai tradition, which is, you know, stoicism in the Japanese culture, really. The Bushido code is, is a stoic code. Right. Anyways, he was the, he had the funniest sense of humor and he was often, you know, at least every other class, I would see him giggling like a schoolgirl. You know what I mean? Here's this 10th grade black belt. Right. And so it was a huge, had a huge impact on me. And I have to say, it's, it's important to be serious about the right things, but be lighthearted in the same sense. Right. And I think that's what you're conveying the Stoics were. They weren't all these hard ass, serious hard ass. They took things seriously, the right things, but they were able to have a lightness of attitude and, and laugh at the fire because you're not about to put it out and everything in that right. is gone. <laughs> Well, and, and I think the other thing is, we, if if we're thinking about what meditations is, it's his notes to himself about the things that he needed to work on most. Yeah. So he's not going to write, he's not going to write a reminder into himself, you know, at night, uh, while he's while he's leading the, the Roman, you know, at the at the front, leading the, the troops yeah. against the barbarian tribes. He's not going to be like, hey, remember to laugh at things when it's funny, or like, right. you know, aren't animals really cute? <laughs> and like, uh, it's great to have fun. You know, he's not going to, he's going to write reminders to himself about forgiveness right. and, and about the ephemerality of life. And he's going to write notes about the things that he's at. The emperor being the emperor would be an incredibly difficult job. And he's going to need help with that. Not necessarily help reminding him that like, Hey, it feels good to blow off some steam every once in a while. Right. And what I love about that and this discussion is that, you know, here's Marcus really said, you know, already hugely successful, you know, emperor, warrior, leader, author. And here he is toward the end of his life, still kind of obsessing about how he can improve himself and go out well. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I love that. And th that almost bridges to your other book, Ego is the Enemy, right? Because I think that there's a nice connection between the obstacle is the way and the ego is the enemy, because ultimately... You know, tamping down and controlling the ego and being able to focus on the right things, the, the important things in life is really what Marcus was talking about in his meditations and, you know, refining your character. And that's a lifelong process. And, and it's cool that you can do that literally up to the day you die. And you know, I, I, I love that, too. Yeah, there there is no there is no end point. And. You know, to the Stoics, the the ideal was the the sage, right? In, in the same way, the sort of the Buddhist might have the the Zen master, right. but it's it's like that's something you can't even dream of being until you're a very old man. And so every day you're getting a little bit closer, but you're constantly comparing yourself against this ideal, not not to feel bad about yourself, but to see how much left there is to go. I think. One of the things that happens as we become successful or, you know, God forbid, you know, you, you get given unlimited power the way he did is that we go like, okay, I'm perfect. I know everything I need to know. Everyone is inferior to me. And that's what creates, you know, so many of the problems that I think a lot of leaders and successful people face is that they start to believe a certain myth or a lie about themselves right. and, and it causes problems. Right. Absolutely. Right. And we see that playing over time and time again in the political spectrum. You know, those who aspire to that power tend to e exaggerate and to 
I guess, fuel their ego until it becomes, you know, all encompassing. It consumes them. Yeah. And that's problematic yeah, when you're in charge of other people, <laughs> especially a whole country, you know. Totally. Yeah. It, it, it's like if you're pursuing this success because you have some hole inside you that you think success is going to fill, I think you're going to be rudely awakened because it never gets filled. And, the, you know, the goalpost is constantly getting moved. So it's like if you think like, oh, I'm going to feel great when I have a million dollars, you're going to get to a million dollars and then suddenly feel empty still. And, and so what, what I think ego does is in, in some ways it's, it's a motive force. It's driving us forward. But the problem is, is it's going somewhere that it can never actually arrive. And it's, I think it's better to be more intrinsically motivated to actually love what it is that you're doing than to feel like this success is going to say something. Because here's the dangerous part. What happens when you fail? If you think your success says something about you, well, then what happens when you, 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 know, you bump into adversity or difficulty? Now, all of a sudden, you think that because you had to declare bankruptcy or you got fired or whatever, that it says you're a failure. And that's not true either. Right, right. Now, e ego, you know, there's a number of ways to look at ego. And I think most people just think, okay, ego is bad because, you know, it, it's a self-centered approach to life. You know, it's all about me, my, me, mine. Success is about my attainment of wealth or, you know, whatever. But kind of in a metaphysical sense, ego is just your self-identity. And, you know, mm -hmm. ego can have a really healthy orientation or integration or ego can have a very unhealthy you know, non-integrated expression, I guess. So it's more yeah. like a scale of, of um, character. You know, well, I, I think depravity would be, you know, kind of the way we usually look at ego, a common definition as bad. And and uh, being a highly evolved human being, it just means that your ego is um, is evolved. Your, your, your self-identity is evolved and it's inclusive of others and, and uh, all sentient beings. Even. Yeah. I think ego has a different definition to different people, and obviously there's the there's the psychological definition, which is much more rigid. Right. I'm sort of referring it to more in the colloquial sense, like when we say, "Oh, that guy has a huge ego," or "That guy's an is an egotist." I, what we mean, what, what I mean, is a sort of collection of traits. You know, it's sort of endless competitiveness, mm -hmm. selfishness, delusion, arrogance. Mm -hmm. You know, that those sort of traits. I think, I think. If we can make the distinction between ego and confidence, mm -hmm. then ego is bad and confidence is, you know, your belief in your own capacities and facilities, which, you know, I believe confidence is earned and ego is this sort of this wishful thinking. Right. And, and I, I just prefer to focus on what we can earn versus what we would, you know, what we want. Right. I think it's really interesting to me that, you know, e ego is the enemy and one of the primary, you know, ways to kill the ego or to check it and put it in place is through challenges, <laughs> obstacles. Mm -hmm. And so in yeah. a sense, you wrote, you wrote the books in the wrong order. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I think that's true. Well, and what's ironic, though, is that egotism often creates obstacles for us that don't need to be there. Right. Um, yeah. When we when we think that we're better than we are, we overreach and we cause problems. When we think that everyone worships us, we treat people poorly and we create enemies. Mm -hmm. You know, when we get complacent because we think we've got everything under control, that's where mistakes happen. Mm -hmm. So I I think that's true. 
but also when we are facing obstacles, it's sort of the worst thing that we can bring to them is ego. What we, what we need is humility and openness and creativity and, and any number of other traits. The worst thing you can bring to it is that, that arrogance and, or that overconfidence that, hey, oh, this will be easy, when in reality, we should be able to, to sort of approach this for what it is and for what it needs. Right. I totally agree. What, and what's going through my mind right now, which is, I think it's fascinating that, you know, I completely subscribe to this philosophy and I do some writing myself you're aware of. And, and I would have yeah. covered these two topics probably in a paragraph each. And, and you were able to create these best-selling books. <laughs> How do you do that? I mean, that's extraordinary. And I think it comes back to being able to really parse out stories and examples and, and just really neck it down into much more refined points. That's a neat skill. I, I don't know about you, but I think I think as a writer, you're always trying to write for yourself first and foremost, right? You have whatever you know and whatever you've learned, but also what you're struggling with. And so I think, you know, I wrote The Obstacles Away because it's a philosophy I, I've tried to live my life by, but I'd like to get better at. Right. And I think for ego, you know, anyone that's out there doing something is going to have a bit of an ego and, and anyone who's achieved some success is going to have temptations, you know, possibly filling up that ego. So I don't know. It was just what I was really, really fascinated by. Just like, you know, I'm sure in each of your books, like that came from your personal sort of obsession with those ideas because books are so, un books are such a difficult process mm. that if you're not driven by something, you're just not going to, you're not going to do it. Right. That is so true. So let's, um, you told a great story yeah. about the fire in Edison. What are some of the, you know, one or two other stories that you think would be inspiring and help uh, convey the principles from the Ego is the Enemy book, your more recent book? One of, one of my heroes is William Tecumseh Sherman, who was a general during the U.S. Civil War, who, you know, obviously became very famous and very successful, but very few people would have predicted those, those traits from him. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of contrast him to a Napoleonic figure, right? You take someone like, like Napoleon, Napoleon believed he was always destined for greatness, that everyone was sort of a character in the play that was his life. And that's why he was successful in the short term, but ultimately not successful in the long term. And, you know, things did not end well for him. B.H. Um, Liddell Hardy's talking about Sherman. He's saying, you know, for someone who's, whose belief in themselves is not innate, success is much sweeter like Sherman was this sort of slow, his ascent was this slow iterative process, sort of putting one foot in front of the other. He actually, when he was called to see Lincoln at the outset of the Civil War, he said, look, I don't think I'm ready for command. I would like to only be the second in command because hmm. he thought there was something left that he needed to learn. Hmm. When at the Battle of Fort Donaldson and then later at, at Vicksburg, he technically outranked Ulysses S. Grant. But he said, hey, this is, this is all you. I'm going to support you however I can. You know, his, his march to the sea was primarily based on his ability to sort of not attack the enemy, you know, not taking the bait. It's sort of battle after battle. He, he, he did this extraordinarily risky thing. So to me, he was a sort of model for someone who's got a, a, a large sense of self-control, who's able to sort of grow their ambitions iteratively, who's able to see opportunities as they come, as opposed to, you know, what we tend to think of generals are as these sort of visionary, bold figures who think that they know better than everyone all the time. 
And so I, that's, that's how I've tried to live my life as well. And so I've always found him to be very inspiring. I, I talk a lot about him in the book. Yeah, that's neat. I love that story. And it's true, you know, with leadership that, you know, I think the best leaders, you know, they never really think they're ready. <laughs> yeah. You know? And there's yeah. always more to learn. There's always more to be done. But, you know, sometimes you just got to step into the breach. And, uh, and that's, where, that's where you learn, you know, your real, your real juice. But like, you know, if you, I, I if you right. just aspire or if you've got to be the leader or, you know, you, if you manipulate your way to the top, then, you know, stand by because you're right. You're leading with ego at that point. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I also, you know, conversely, I tell the story of Xerxes, who's the Persian king right. who was defeated by the Spartans at Thermopylae. You know, he was a delusional maniac who believed that he was he was a god, god on earth. And right. there's this famous story as he was invading Greece, this bridge that they'd built, it, it was collapsed by a freak storm. And so he, he, he orders his men to lash, lash the water as a punishment for daring to upset his plans. <laughs> and la later he writes a letter to a mountain that he's having to sort of tunnel through. And he's like, you know, if you disrupt my plans, like I'll topple you into the sea. Like he actually writes a letter I to know. a mountain and and so that's that I, you know to me that's the opposite of what uh, a well-adjusted sane you know non-egotistical person should do and it's ultimately why he was able to be defeated because he thought that just being bigger and better was all that it took and he didn't he didn't understand strategy he didn't understand you know right. he didn't understand real courage you know he didn't understand leverage and so, you know, he was ultimately humiliated and defeated as, as a result of that arrogance and that ego. Mm. Yeah, I love that story. And I, I love how the, one of our favorite movies, you know, of course, is Sealfit is, is uh, 300. Where mm -hmm. Leonidas takes his 300 men to fight Xerxes at the hot gates. And, the, what you know, the scene that depicts what you just talked about is where Leonidas throws the spear and it nicks Xerxes' face. And for the first time, he sees mm -hmm. he sees that he can bleed, right? Because up until that moment, right. he thought he was invincible. He thought he was, you know, going to live forever as a god. And all of a sudden, you know, his confidence was just shot right there. The rest was history. Right. And instead of learning from that experience, he attacks anyway, right? right exactly. uh, and I think that's the other part of ego is that it doesn't learn. It doesn't get the feedback that it needs to improve or adjust. Correct. Fascinating. All right, let's move on to one last thing I want to talk about because, a lot, you know, a lot of our listeners are, you know, I love to read and I imagine a few of them are actually authors themselves. Book marketing, um, you're, you have a skill at this. Can you talk about some of the ideas that you have for how does a, a self-published author, you know, or any author these days get their book noticed? Because you're going through the same thing with... Ego is the enemy. And everything's a game now with the New York Times bestseller list and very difficult to get noticed. What are some of the strategies we can look at? You know, and these are some of the things that we're going to be talking about with, you know, my next book too. But, you know, today, what are some of the strategies to get noticed as an author? Well, one of the problems I think people make is they go make something and then they think, how can I get noticed? Right. When really they should be thinking before they make it what they need to be to be noticed, right? Like, they, they'll make something that's very similar to what other people make, or they'll make something that's not super exciting. Like marketing to me is the gasoline you're pouring on the fire, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the creation of the fire. Nice. So I, I, I try to do a lot of work on the sort of creative side of things first and foremost. But then, you know, I think you're a good example of this. People want to have a platform, like they want to have lots of fans, 
uh, when they launch something, but they don't do the work beforehand to build that up, right? right? So they think it's like, hey, I made this book, Barnes and Noble should put it at the front, and then the publisher should spend a lot of money on advertising, and then I'll be rich, right? Yeah. Like that's the thinking. It's not, hey, I'm going to build up, you know, a core audience of ten or fifteen thousand fans who love what I do. I'm going to make something that I know solves a problem for them that's interesting for them, and then that's, and then I'm going to launch, and then. You know, when I sell those first 5,000 copies, let's say, now I have something that's going to spread by word of mouth. Because at the end of the day, every successful book sells because one person recommends it to another person right. and they recommend it to another person. And, right. and we tend to just think this is magic and it's really not magic. It's a result of work and strategy. Mm -hmm. So you'd need to be starting at least a year out or more if you don't have a tribe yeah. or a community or a following. And, and blogs and... Yeah podcasts and stuff like we're doing right now are probably one of the the best means. Is that right? Or are there other things that you can do? No, no. I, I think it's it's about building up your network. It's about building up your fan base. It's about building up, you know, your your connections. And then of course you want to use all the new technologies out there, right? You want to be using social media and you want to be posting on these different sites or you know, you want to appear on podcasts. But it's the, most of the like all things, most of the work is done behind the scenes not it's not sending out a press release and then you know waiting for the new york times to call right well i certainly learned that recently too with the kokoro yoga book new york times didn't call i'm still waiting for that one <laughs> yeah <laughs> but me the book too. Is we all we're all waiting <laughs> i know yeah screw them we don't need them right we'll do this without them no, wait, wait. I mean, what you need is people who actually like the thing that you've made and you have that. And ultimately, you know, that's what lasts, not, hey, you know, I was on Good Morning America for three minutes and it sold a thousand books. Right. I'd much rather have an email list of a thousand people who buy my book over the next two years. And tell their friends about it, who tell their friends. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah, I agree. Very cool. Fantastic conversation, Ryan. Really interesting. Everyone is listening. Go check out his new book, Ego is the Enemy. I highly recommend it. And, you know, while you're there, get his companion, The Obstacles Away. They, they really do go together. They're published uh, in a really nice kind of small book format. I'm sure there's a name for that. I love the size of your books. They almost fit in a cargo pocket, you know? So, you, you know, if you're a military guy, you can just take it out in the field with you and read it in a hide site and uh, get a lot out of it. So thank you, Ryan, for, for writing them. Um, I appreciate everything you do, and uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks you for having me. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, look forward to it. All right, everyone, that's it. So Ryan Holiday, Ego is the Enemy. Go check it out. You can check, you know, find him just by Googling him. Um, he's got a, a blog. He's, you know, he's got articles that come out um, that are syndicated, and the books are great, so I really enjoy them. And until next time, train hard, stay focused, never think that you've got it all figured out because ego is the enemy. Hoo-yah. Coach to find out. If you're finding inspiration in the Unbeatable Mind podcast, then I bet you're ready to take the next step toward discovering your why and developing your self-mastery. So I encourage you to check out the Unbeatable Mind Online Academy. The Unbeatable Mind Academy is our intensive online training program with step-by-step -step techniques and training for developing mental focus and clarity, expanding your awareness, developing authentic leadership, increasing your functional fitness, nutrition, and recovery, and all around developing yourself to a higher stage and maximizing your performance as a human being. 
You're going to get great training and support from myself and other coaches, and you'll be connected to your peers on the same journey in our private Facebook group. So if you're ready to cultivate your warrior spirit and develop your unbeatable mind, find out more at unbeatablemind.com. That's unbeatablemind.com. Cool. See you in training. Back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UDT.